This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. You didn't think plucked chickens hibernate for the summer, but they do. Actually, a little bit more into fall. The plucked chicken is alive and well, actually in what we call the Southeastern District, which makes up five states in the LCMS, going from in the north, Delaware, all the way down to South Carolina. And today I am in Tryon, North Carolina with Pastor Olson. Pastor Olson has served here at Trinity Lutheran Church for the last 15 years and probably has the best study I've ever been in in my life. Not only is it wall-to-wall books everywhere, which I absolutely love, I just want to put my fingers in every one of them, but there is a big picture window that looks out. Now, that is not a creek where I am from. That has got to be a river. It's the Pakalit River. It is absolutely beautiful, and uh, there's nothing but trees and woods and this river. My goodness, best study by far, five stars. So thank you very much for being on the Pluck Chicken today. Thank you, Pastor Kearns. Great to be here. You've been here 15 years. What was your previous call before this? I served two pastorates, uh, one in uh, Honeygrove, Texas, for six years, and then came north to uh, Decatur, Indiana, at St. John Bingen, south of Fort Wayne. Wonderful. And what we're going to do today is we are going to listen to an American Evangelical Sermon on Baptism. This guy who's preaching is going to be a guest preacher at this church. It's a church in Asheville, North Carolina, called Biltmore Church. He's got some chops. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times we we listen to guys on the Pluck Chicken. Some of them have chops and some of them don't. But this guy does. I mean, he's he's enjoyable to listen to even though he is still spewing what you and I would call heterodoxy. And I actually have a clip from another sermon. I don't know if we'll get to it or not. I don't want to overwhelm you here for this being your first time on the Pluck Chicken. Uh, But uh, let's give it a listen. His name is Clayton King, preaching on the subject of baptism. Good morning, Biltmore Church. Welcome to everybody at every campus and those watching online. If I've never met you before, my name is Clayton King. I am your neighbor to the south in the great state of South Carolina, where it is on average 23 degrees hotter every minute of the year than uh, Western North Carolina. We're gonna be in John chapter three today. I wanna go ahead and ask you to turn there. We're in the series called The Gospel of John. And when Pastor Bruce invited me to come and preach today, I was really excited because of where the text takes us today. So let me go ahead and tell you on every campus and watching online what we're gonna get to experience today at Biltmore Church. For the last 17 years as I've been preaching here at Biltmore, I've loved watching people come to faith in Christ, I've loved watching as Pastor Bruce has led us in this vision of reaching Western North Carolina with the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing people go public in their faith through the spiritual act of baptism. Today, we're going to put baptism, this spiritual act of obedience, front and center for our church. We're gonna baptize today at every campus all across our campuses at Biltmore. All right, your ears perked up, Pastor Olson, when he said that. I believe he said it twice, did he not? This spiritual act of baptism. What did you hear? Starts out right at the heart of the matter as to how one is saved and 
what Christ has accomplished and what it is ours to do, if anything, in order to be saved and in our life as Christians. Luther saw baptism in relation to the doctrine of justification. Uh, Baptism is justification uh, as the person is acted upon by the Holy Spirit through the water with the Word of God and uh, the person is created anew as a believer in Jesus Christ, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, is forgiven his or her sins, and uh, begins to live in that baptism which the person has received. When we say that this gets to the very heart, the discussion of baptism, what has Christ done to save us? What act has he accomplished? I believe is the big question here. In my slight study of American evangelicalism, I learned that it is not common for such preachers to uh, accept Christ as the completion not only of the payment for our sins, but as the completion of righteousness in our stead before God. And thus something is left. And this is where Clayton King seems to be speaking of the first act uh, of obedience is the spiritual act of baptism. Uh, Rather than baptism being one's life in Christ, in fact, Scare in his book Baptism in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series writes, baptism is not something which merely happened once. It is something which is always happening. Such thinking is unique to the Lutheran understanding of baptism. It's without parallel in Roman Catholic thought where the grace of baptism must be reinforced and in Reformed thought where grace is never inherent in the act itself and thus the baptized must look within himself for signs of the Spirit's working. The American evangelical view sees baptism as the act of the believer, and he calls it going public in faith, as though this is some act of his. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I tell you what, uh, Pastor Bruss had this uh, really, to me, uncanny ability to listen to an American evangelical just for, just, I don't even know, like a, a couple of minutes and know where this guy was going. And that's exactly what you have done, Pastor Olson. I mean, you have said that what Clayton King is getting ready to talk about puts the decision, the momentum, everything regarding baptism on the individual rather than God doing this for the individual. Yes, and when we think of John chapter 3, which he is about to expound upon, we learn that baptism is a, a rebirth. It's, a, it's being born from above. And uh, already we can see his understanding of oh, baptism. Guess, it, what, guess what, Pastor Olson? It gets worse. 
And in John chapter three today, the text takes us to a place where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and we get to explore this beautiful thing that we call baptism. Now let me go ahead and fast forward to the end of our gathering. Several things are gonna happen today. They're gonna happen here in this room and at every campus. We already have some people that are signed up to be baptized after they've given their life to Christ because that's the sequence of baptism, and we'll talk about that in the message today. Well, let's talk about it right now. Pastor Olson, what do you think about that? What is being given and by whom in baptism? King has just declared that in baptism, the Christian gives himself to Christ. It begins and entails much more and Consider these words of Luther. Baptism gives victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sins, God's grace, the entire Christ, and the Holy Spirit and his gifts. So in baptism, Christ is the giver and the content. And here we understand what is the content of baptism in King's teaching. It is the Christian's own act of obedience. Whereas When Christ instituted this sacrament, he constituted its content. He gives himself to us in baptism. Baptism is more than an instrument which leads to Christ. It is the sacrament in which Christ is permanently present to the believer. That's what's going on in baptism. That's what needs to be the focus. And uh, King is taking us down the wrong path in a serious way. But I'm also going to be extending an invitation to every campus as well as to those of you watching online. And at the end of the message today, you're going to be invited, if you have never been biblically baptized, identifying yourself with Jesus Christ after your conversion to faith, we're going to invite you to be baptized today. Even if you didn't plan on being baptized today, we've taken care of all of the details. We have t-shirts, we have shorts, we have towels, and I've never said this before in my life on stage, 35 years in ministry. We even have undergarments if you're worried about that. If I understood Clayton correctly, he spoke of what takes place after conversion when he's discussing Baptism. Correct. It's the first act of obedience after conversion. And he just spoke of that directly. And here again, we find ourselves in John 3, and we are learning how conversion takes place. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, and in the darkness of night, Nicodemus's eyes are being opened, and he's seeing, he's being shown the light, and we have King pulling the darkness over the heads in talking of baptism. That's a first for me, hallelujah. There is no reason you can't be baptized today if you've never been baptized after your salvation experience. And so in about 33 minutes, that's what we're gonna be doing. And we're gonna walk you through it and make it as easy as it can possibly be for you. And in this next uh, 32 minutes or so as I'm preaching, I want you to feel the power of baptism. That's the title of the message today, the power of baptism. Paul speaks of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Baptism 
which is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. When baptism is defined as our act of obedience rather than God's act of regeneration and of salvation, one loses the comfort, one loses the certainty of salvation which comes from the gospel being bestowed through the water of baptism as Jesus intends and uh, accomplishes. It's one thing for American evangelicals to discuss amongst themselves uh, things like baptism, talking about the power of baptism when actually it's been stripped of all of its power when you make it about a work or something that you do, as Pastor Bruss would say, to prove that you're on Team Jesus. I guess the problem that I have is the vast number of Lutherans who've been catechized correctly, who have been taught incessantly that baptism is a work that God does upon the individual, which brings about the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, everything that you read from Scare's book of baptism, quoting Luther. Our Lutheran brothers and sisters, they have been just as caught up in what we're hearing here from this American evangelical who is spewing his heterodoxy. Somehow or another, Lutherans who are catechized and taught correctly go into these churches and they are mesmerized. They've never seen anything like this. And so when this guy gets up, and he's, as I've said before, he's got some chops, he gets up and he talks about how if you were baptized as a baby, and he'll get into this, If you were baptized as a baby and you didn't understand what conversion meant, you need to get baptized again. And hey, we're going to have that available for you today. And we've got t-shirts and shorts and hairbrushes and hair dryers and undergarments for you. There's no excuse. There's no reason to wait. To sow those seeds of doubt in the mind of the baptized is a serious error. And it works against all that Christ is about, which is certainty of salvation, that we know we are the children of God by this external act, which he instituted, which is his act. King speaks of after your salvation experience. He speaks of being baptized after your salvation experience. In John 3, we learn baptism is your salvation experience. What? There's not some shivers that run down your livers. There's not some kind of emotional response to accepting Jesus and then getting baptized. You're saying these are one and the same? Titus chapter 3 says it very well. Not according to deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's where salvation takes place. So you're one of those Bible believers. Is that what I'm hearing? Bible believer, yes. (laughs) Now, without any uh, further ado or introduction, let me make a statement before we read the Scripture. Baptism is not salvation. Well, that didn't take long to uh, completely uh, contradict what you just said, Pastor Olson. 
Well, I'd like to say it again, but I want to read the whole context. Um, Paul is writing to Titus, and in chapter 3, he says in verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We are saved when we are washed into new life. And in that moment, we are renewed by the Holy Spirit. And this takes us back to the very beginning where baptism uh, was first introduced in the book of Acts to the Christian church. After Peter had preached his first sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2, 38, he responds to those who said, What shall we do, we who have crucified the Lord of glory? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins is salvation. It is attached to the water of baptism. It is given and received in that act. And so we are the saved. And I have to say that because there are so many different understandings and assumptions made about the act of baptism. And depending on what tradition you grew up in, some of you may have been raised Roman Catholic, or some of you may have come from a Methodist tradition or a Wesleyan tradition, or if you came from a Baptist tradition like I did, then you may have uh, seen people baptized very often by total immersion, or maybe from a Presbyterian tradition where you were sprinkled on the top of your head. And I wanna make sure that we understand that baptism itself does not save a person. I find it very interesting, Pastor Olson. Lutheranism never makes it, or I should say rarely makes it into the list of, you know, you were raised Presbyterian, you were raised Baptist, you were raised Methodist. Lutheranism is like the ugly girl at the dance, and, uh, you know, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to identify with her for some strange reason. What do you think about that? I like to hear it when they mention Lutheranism, so when they leave it out, I'm disappointed. <laughs> He said that baptism does not save you. This is Antichrist speech. You're smelling some sulfur in the air? Is that, is that what I'm picking up on, that smell? I, I'm simply reading the scriptures <laughs> and listening to him. I read in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, namely the saving of the eight persons at the time of the flood, through water, through water, baptism now saves you. And this baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body, but it is the appeal to God for a good conscience. You know, and that part there, that appeal to God for a good conscience, correct me if I'm wrong, that's just another way of saying the forgiveness of sins. Like your conscience is clear. Yes, uh, baptism is that appeal to God for a good conscience. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
we hear Jesus say to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I always ask the question, when? And the answer is on the day of Christ's resurrection, he appeared to the disciples in the upper room, breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit, and bestowed the keys, the keys of forgiving and retaining sins because he had now had them as the one who had conquered death, overcome sin's punishment, endured it, and, and had opened the gate to heaven. Satan had been defeated. Baptism is a sign and a symbol that you have been saved and that you do belong to Jesus. It's a matter of conscience. And so some of you that may have grown up in a tradition where you were baptized or christened or confirmed or dedicated as a baby or a young child, you may feel something stir in your heart today as I'm preaching. And you may realize, you know what? I've never been baptized after I repented of my sin, invited Jesus to be my Lord, Master, and Savior, and gave my life fully and completely to him. And if that's your story, and you have been saved, born again, after you were confirmed or christened or baptized as a child, then today you're gonna have an opportunity at every campus to actually follow Christ in this powerful spiritual discipline, this uh, spiritual, beautiful thing that we call baptism. He keeps baptism. saying the same thing over and over again, doesn't he? But he is, and he's really hitting the point. It's, it's all about baptism coming after you've had this quote-unquote experience. Your thoughts? He is fighting terribly hard to deny the truth. And it's a scary thing to hear him say this over and over again, denying the reality of baptism as that which is Christ's institution. Not simple water only, but the water comprehended in God's command and connected with God's word, as Luther teaches us in the small catechism. It works forgiveness of sins. It delivers from death and the devil, and it gives eternal salvation to all who believe this. I find the fact that Baptists are taught, as King is teaching them here, a wide-open opportunity every time I meet a Baptist to impress upon them once I know they are baptized. And that, that's what I ask a person. I don't ask, are you a Christian? I ask, are you baptized? And when they answer yes, I say, isn't it wonderful? Your sins are forgiven. You have been delivered from death and the devil, and you have eternal salvation. And for these people in whose ears have been pounded with this message to follow up with Acts 2, 38 and 39, the word of God, to take them to Titus chapter 3, to take them to Romans 6, he who has been baptized into Christ, has died with Christ, been buried with Christ, been raised with Christ, is to give them the power of baptism in their life. It's an opportunity. Well, I find it interesting that you said whenever you meet a Baptist. I mean, Clayton King clearly is, I mean, you know, he, I don't know exactly, he's the guest 
preacher at this church, but this church is a non-denominational church. You know, I mean, that's kind of the buzzword these days, how yeah. cool that is, the non-denominational. And I think even though he was tra- raised and trained as a Baptist, he would be pastoring a non-denominational church. But what you have correctly pointed out is already in what he said, really, those in the non-denominational camp, they're just Baptists. It's kind of like my mother-in-law who bought a Saturn years ago. She was so excited about her Saturn. Saturn was, you know, the car, you know, they honked at each other on the road when they saw somebody else driving. It's kind of like a Tesla today. You know, it's like, uh, especially in Asheville where I live, uh, you know, every other car is a Tesla and they're so cool because they're driving a Tesla. And, uh, you know, they honk at each other and there's Tesla clubs and blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. But when you open up the hood on a Saturn, it was a Ford engine with Ford parts made at a Ford factory. The only thing unique about it was it had a unique body style and it was called a Saturn. Really, they're driving a Ford. And so that's really the non-denominational thing. You know, they're all driving around how cool we are. You open up the hood and I'll be doggone. It's a bunch of Baptist parts. Very good. I, I like the analogies. Baptism is not salvation, but baptism is a sign of transformation. What does a sign do? This morning, my wife and I were driving here uh, to this campus at Arden, and there are signs everywhere. There are stop signs. There are yield signs. There are exit signs off of the interstate. What does a sign do? A sign points to something. A sign gives direction. So I will never say, you will never hear me as a pastor or an evangelist say that baptism is just a symbol, or merely a symbol. I grew up as a Baptist kid hearing that phrase. Baptism is just a symbol. Well, it is a symbol, but it's not just a symbol. Baptism is the moment when we publicly identify with Jesus and we live a public life with Christ. Jesus is participating in our conversion. Jesus is participating in our baptism. He's right there with you when you go public and confess that Christ is Lord publicly with the act of baptism. So if salvation is, if baptism is not salvation, I want to show you five things that baptism is. That sounded very Pelagian, did it not? I mean, I've heard this sermon several times. You're hearing it for the first time, obviously, and uh, that Jesus is participating. It's like you and Jesus. I feel like we stepped into a pile of uh, semi-Pelagianism there. What my understanding is that salvation is not complete. It's not completed by the work of Christ. Right. And this is what I was speaking of earlier. Right. That there is some act of obedience, some moral act that is required of man. And so it's not Christ alone. It's not faith alone. It's not grace alone, obviously. On the other hand, it's difficult to run away from the word of the Lord. Let me give you another translation of Titus 3.5. He saved us by the washing 
through which the Holy Spirit regenerates and renews us. So there, baptism and salvation, uh, really you would say that baptism is a salvific gift. Absolutely. They're synonymous. Yes. It's not first step, second step here. Absolutely not. And when you understand the scriptures beginning with baptism as they do in Acts 2, 38 and 39, on Pentecost, the first recorded sermon and the first response, what shall we do? Be baptized. Then all of a sudden you can understand 1 Corinthians six eleven, where we have, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So, but wasn't that washing there that Paul speaks of, isn't that just a you know, uh, I don't know, a spiritual type of thing or, a, you know, just kind of a noetic thing, something that's going on in your mind or maybe something in your heart. You're, you're making it out like that washing there was the actual pouring of water that the pastor physically poured out upon your head. Aren't you pushing that a little too much there, Pastor? King would say, I am. But the scriptures are clear. The washing of water with the word makes us members of the one body of Christ. Baptism is the clothing of oneself with Christ and his merits. Galatians 3, 26 to 27. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism cleanses from sin, prepares for the marriage in heaven, of Christ and his bride, the church. It puts off the body of flesh. It cleanses us from sin. So baptism is uh, much more than a symbol. Well, I do want to give him some little bit of prop, even though we're, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, shoo the sulfur out from our, uh, our nose and our ears here. I find it interesting that what he said is, is that growing up, it was a sign and a symbol. But then, after, he said, 35 years in ministry, he realizes that it's more than that. So that's good. There's some movement here. Unfortunately for us, it's still not what the Scripture says. It is still going to be the Christian's activity rather than what Jesus instituted is his saving act. The way by which what he accomplished on the cross is bestowed on each of us individually for our certainty. Big difference. I want to read the scripture uh, from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. I want to invite you at every campus and online to join along with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can look on the screens or on your phone if you're watching at home and couldn't get to church today. John chapter 3, uh, verse 22. It reads this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. Now, I wanna just, I'll leave that verse up there for a moment. I wanna make sure you see this. Jesus valued baptism. It was important to our Savior. He was baptizing people along with his disciples. John also was baptizing in Enon near Selene because there was plenty of water there. People were coming 
and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Uh, point of order here to make sure you know, there are two Johns that are prominent in the Gospels. One is John the Baptist, and he is Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was called the Baptist not because he went to Southeastern Seminary and got a Master's of Divinity. He wasn't denominationally a Baptist. He was literally, in the, in the Greek, it means John the baptizer. The word baptize, just to make sure you understand, means to go under or to be immersed. You heard that phrase, and some of you, when you had children for the first time, you may have used this phrase, I have been baptized in fire. Or maybe some of you, when you got married, you used the phrase, I have been baptized in suffering. Please don't say that too many times. I hope that's not true for you. To be baptized means to be fully immersed, to, to be fully uh, sunk down underneath, to be covered over, to be surrounded by. That's what it means to be baptized. Oh, Pastor Olson, I have, I have heard this so many times. I mean, what does baptizo mean? It means to apply water. <laughs> yeah, right. It means to wash, you yes. know. And uh, these guys, they do it. I could play you 10 different sermons off of the pluck chicken where they say the exact same thing. They say that it always means to immerse. Pastor Bruss likes to use the uh, illustration of where uh, the Pharisees were baptizing the couches and uh, clearly, they were not immersing their couches. It's amazing that he goes to such lengths to uh, identify the meaning of this word and so quickly overlooks the word saved and doesn't see saved and salvation as what is being accomplished by baptism. Um, he's speaking about John and Jesus both baptizing and of course, we'll learn, and he no doubt knows, that uh, Jesus himself wasn't baptizing at that point, but only his disciples. But the question has to be, what was the purpose of John's baptism, and how did it differ from Jesus? And this is a matter of some discussion, even among Lutherans and biblical scholars of various sorts. John's baptism goes back to understanding the situation of Israel in Jesus' day, and to the prophetic word of Malachi, where the Lord says through Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Israel was at the point of being totally destroyed on more than one occasion. Once Moses reminded God of his covenant and the Lord relented. At the time of the uh, destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, God saved a remnant not because of their value, but because of his covenant that he promised to send the Savior through as Abraham's seed. But in the days of Jesus, Israel had fallen to a similar state where very few were living in repentance and faith in the coming Savior. 
And John was sent to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers. If this baptism unto repentance had not taken place, when Jesus came, all of Israel would have been like Jericho, destroy every man, woman, and child. So the purpose of John's baptism was literally to prepare a people to receive the Savior when he came. And the world in which John preached was one of utter darkness, total apostasy. Apostasy, yes, it's exactly right. But it would be that no more because the Spirit worked through John's baptism as the Spirit works through Jesus' baptism, working repentance in their hearts so that when Christ was proclaimed, uh, there were those to receive him. Jesus' baptism is not a baptism unto repentance in the exact same way, but rather one unto eternal life, forgiveness of sins. But in the fact that Christ had already died and risen, so one is baptized into Christ's own death and resurrection. One is joined to his accomplished work, and it now belongs to the baptized. This is what is unique. John did not experience this. He didn't even see it. We are joined to Christ in his act. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that, that we're joined to Christ in his act. When Paul says so many times in the letters that he writes, i.e. the epistles, he will talk about being in Christ. This is baptismal language, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. When one is in Christ, it is because he or she is baptized. Yes, and and when one understands this, it it really does become a a glorious picture for them and a great confidence to be the baptized and the protection God gives. It also has to do with election that one realizes, if I'm in Christ here, Paul in Ephesians 1 gives us the certainty that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's a mind bender. Yeah, that's another story. So you've got John the Baptist, then you've got John... The disciple, a different John, who is writing this gospel, one of the four testimonies of Jesus. It says in the next verse, Then a dispute arose among John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, he is baptizing And everybody is going to him. Now, let me give you some context here. Just leave that up there. Baptism does create some misunderstanding as far as Christian tradition and denominations go. And it started all the way back in the Gospel of John. Actually, Judaism was a religion that practiced baptism before Christianity practiced it. Because Christianity flowed out of Judaism. Other religions practiced baptism as a purification. So when this Jew begins to argue with John's disciples about purification, he was arguing with them about the way people were baptized, the the technicalities of it. And I want to let you know, Biltmore, today here in our gatherings, we are not going to be legalistic about 
this act of baptism. We wanna be biblical about it, but the bottom line is this sign and symbol is a powerful declaration to the world and we don't need to argue about it. We can simply follow the scripture. That strikes me so strange. I've heard that several times. We're not going to be legalistic about it, but he's been legalistic about it up until this point that this is what baptism is. It's done by immersion. It's after your conversion experience. I mean, he, he said that several times, and he's going to continue to say those things several times, but he's not going to be legalistic about it, and yet we're going to follow the Scripture. And one of the things that you've done in the few moments that we've been together, you've pointed out a handful of Scriptures that— completely go against what he's saying. I don't know. At this point, this is where the Lutheran starts to hear the evangelical and just thinks there's like some schizophrenia taking place here. (laughs) Yes. The big thing is he speaks of following the scriptures. And um, I pointed to Acts 2, 38 and 39, the first uh, response in preaching to those in need. The first evangelistic act is Philip the evangelist meeting the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And after describing of whom Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, in doing so, preached Jesus to him. And what was the Ethiopian eunuch's response? What prevents me from being baptized? To preach Jesus is to preach baptism as the way of salvation. And what's fascinating about that, you know, here's this Ethiopian eunuch who has just come from Jerusalem. We already know that he's got the scroll of Isaiah, which was, you know, hard to come by for anybody. But this guy's got the entire scroll of Isaiah. He's reading it. Uh, So, I mean, there's a lot going on upstairs for this guy. But the reality is because he is a eunuch, He can only get so far into Jerusalem. I mean, the Bible is pretty clear. Anybody with mutilated or crushed private parts, you're only going to get so far. And so here he is having, you know, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so here Christ is being preached into his ears and he says, what prevents me? Like, is it because I'm a eunuch that I, that I can't be baptized? I mean, I was already shown the door, so to speak, or the hand in Jerusalem. Is God going to show me his hand here and say, I'm sorry, you can only come this far? That's excellent. I've never really thought of that aspect of his word. It's absolutely yeah. incredible to say, no, that does... What has happened to you as a child or, you know, whenever this, uh, you know, whenever you were uh, employed in the uh, uh, taking care of the king's harem, which is most likely what he was involved with? No, that does not bar you from the gifts that the Lord wants to give you. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. In other words, what prevents me from being saved? Right. Yes. And, and, and this is the thing that uh, Clayton King will get to, you know, and he's already mentioned it. It's this public declaration. Well, when the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized, who was he publicly declaring his salvation to? The chariot driver? The horse? What is this, Mr. Ed? You know, we're, we're publicly displaying uh, the fact that we're on Team Jesus to, to the horse? It's preposterous. It's, it's just going down the wrong track, and it's importing something into Scripture which is not there. It is, it is sad. 
It says in the next verse, 27, John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is my favorite verse in the Bible, John 3.30. When Pastor Bruce asked me to preach this text today, he was like, would you like to preach on baptism? I said, John 3.30, I'm like a mosquito at a nudist colony. Where do I even get started? Let me at him. Oh, y'all thought that was funny. Okay, good, good, good. I was hoping that would land well. <laughs> I'll see if I can recover from that now. I'm starting to get the idea here that John 3 is just kind of in the backdrop. It's not supposed to be expounded upon. It's not supposed to be, take for instance, say in your sermon this coming Sunday, you take one of the texts given to you through the lectionary, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the epistle. Some of the best Lutheran sermons I've ever heard weave all three of them together, which sometimes is easier to do than, than other times. But regardless, usually most Lutheran pastors just take the gospel text or the Old Testament or what have you, and they really dig down deep. I don't, I don't get a sense that we're going to dig down deep. I think the issue is baptism, and more importantly or practically is pushing people to make a decision because we're going to have a baptism at the end of this service, as you'll recall, and we've got everything you need. And so it's almost like a sales job. Like we, we've got to close the deal because, uh, you know, the timeshare on the condominium, like we've got all these people here and we're going to be giving away these free, you know, Chick-fil-A cards. We, we've got to get people to, uh, to sign the dotted line. Your thoughts. I was just shocked because I came to that realization that uh, he's not going to teach us what John 3 says. He is not looking at what the words say. He is using it as an opportunity to bash the truth of baptism. Uh, when I study John 3 regarding baptism, I find that Jesus has just taught us baptism is the means whereby God regenerates all the unregenerate. So you're saying that God uses physical things that bestow salvation? Exactly, yes. And, and this is according to God's wisdom and creation and plan. Everything fits together. Isn't this supposed to be something that you just either think in your head or like feel in your heart? Isn't it supposed to be kind of misty like that? You're saying I'm it's saying, actually tactile. You can I'm, actually point to it. I'm saying it's concrete, yes. Oh, God. And it's God. In fact, well, in fact, you, let me just tell you something. Where did you get that? Let me tell you something. What I found very fascinating in my study of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each refer to the touch of Jesus roughly seven times each. And it's very important in those Gospels. You come to John's Gospel, and he doesn't mention the touch of Jesus. I believe that John, in his gospel, is writing after most all the apostles have been martyred. 
and the question on the minds of his readers who have been touched by Jesus through his apostles, you know, their hands, their clothes, right? Their handkerchiefs. They were touched by them and healed. Where is the touch of Jesus now? And John is telling us in John 3, he is telling us here is the touch of Jesus. It's a concrete connection to our Savior. He has ordained water, comprehended in his command and connected with his word to be that place of touch. And in John 6, he's going to introduce something else. You just don't understand, Pastor, because you've been raised Lutheran, but I'm not trying to um, push aside all the hundreds upon hundreds of conversations that you've had with non-Lutherans or even some of your own Lutheran parishioners. When they're looking for assurance within themselves in that they felt something or they experienced something or thought something even, but to have them drawn to the physical, as you said, concrete, tangible, tactile waters, and not just the waters. I mean, when they come to church, when your folks come to church here and you take the Patton, I believe, off the chalice, if you if you have all of that, and you you smell the blood of Christ, you you taste the body of Christ. When you hear, after confessing, I a poor miserable sinner, when you actually hear the pastor who says, In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins. Like, people could walk out of church at that point after hearing that. They're like, my sins are forgiven. Now, the great thing is the Lord wants to give them more because his hand is open to them, and he wants to give them more. And so it's like, no, stick around. The Lord wants to give you more. The point is, is that if someone were greeted in the parking lot and asked, how do you know that the Lord has forgiven you your sins? They would say, well, I heard the pastor say it. I tasted and chewed and swallowed the very body and blood, the sinless body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's word was heard. Faith cometh by hearing. It was preached into my ears. I know without a shadow of a doubt that my sins are forgiven. Whereas in the evangelical church, you never really know for sure. It's kind of like that old game that the little girl or little boy would play. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Yeah, I don't know if I'm feeling it today. The comfort is in what you just said, is that it's concrete. Yeah, and it's, it's something external done to us by one outside us. And that's true also in the, the absolution spoken. Um, the laying on of hands that accompanies that in private absolution. And, of course, in the Lord's Supper, as you spoke. And these are the places that God has established, that Christ has established. Both baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper are under that umbrella of the new covenant, which has replaced the old or the fulfillment of the old, whereas the Lord's Supper is highlighted even more so. This cup is the New Testament in my blood or the new covenant in my blood. Uh, baptism also is a covenantal act 
in which he makes us his family, cleansing us, uniting us to, to his bride. So John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus is baptizing people. And just like human beings who are insecure and love drama and love to fight and gossip, there begins to be this conversation. Hey, John, uh, you know, Jesus is bigger than you now. Jesus is more popular than you now. Jesus is more famous than you now. And John says, praise God, I can't wait until my name is forgotten. And Jesus is the only name people are talking about. You mean Jesus is baptizing more people than me? Good, that's my job. My job is to get smaller and make him bigger. My job is to be a sign that doesn't point to me and say, look at how many people I'm baptizing. My job is to point to Jesus and say, everybody, behold the Lamb of God. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. He's more than just my second cousin. He is my savior, my master, and my Lord. He must increase. I must decrease. I want the spotlight on Jesus. I'll just fade into the background. This is not about me. This is about Jesus. Now, with that being said, I want to show you five things that baptism is from the scriptures. There are so many other verses and passages I could, I could preach on today, but I really want to stick to this. First of all, baptism is an admission. It's an admission. You are admitting, and I, and I wanted to encapsulate it in this simple phrase, I'm sinful and cannot fix myself. I don't have any problem with that, do you? No, not really. Uh, not at not at all. At least that. on face value there. Yes. Um, for example, think of it this way. Where sins are confessed before the Holy Communion, this is done not as an isolated act, but in the context of baptism. When you and I come to private absolution, Luther says, I'm only asking you to return and to continue doing what you once began in baptism, to confess your sins, to receive forgiveness. Well, it's almost like uh, when a mother and father bring their child to baptism, they're confessing that the child needs something, even though the child doesn't realize it. But the parents are recognizing this child needs to be saved. Yes, and by the Holy Spirit in baptism, the child is being taught. So the child, ever since then, baptism is a repentant sinner who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness. That's what is being accomplished in baptism. And uh, are, are infants needed as much as we do as adults? By the way, the Holy Spirit has to teach us older folks to repent as well. This is not limited to infants. Baptism as a sign as a symbol of the gospel, of the kingdom of God coming, of our purification, of our cleansing in the blood of Jesus, baptism is an admission. We are admitting, I don't have it all together. You know, John and Jesus both baptized. Baptism for the Jews was a purification, it was a rite, it was an act to purify yourself, to cleanse your flesh. And it didn't just happen once, it happened multiple times in Judaism. And what it means for us today, baptism symbolizes a new start. 
It symbolizes a fresh beginning. Uh, symbolizes. There is symbolism in baptism, and we Lutherans aren't opposed to the idea of immersion. You're talking about the symbolism being found in Romans 6? I'm talking about died with Christ, buried with Christ, raised to new life. The actuality of what is occurring is shown in that act, but we sprinkle, we pour also. And the reason we pour... Because the reality is still there, Uh huh. and you don't always, you know, the symbol is... Uh, symbolism of actually immersing is not necessary. But Luther Luther did favor immersion. When it's possible. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to do it in, in the winter in Germany when you have a problem already with infant mortality. Not going to happen. Um, but he, we hear the word symbol, but he's talking about the act as being symbolic, whereas... We understand the act to be a, a reality, an actual saving, cleansing action, and not just a symbolic outward washing or even an, simply an inward washing, but rather a regeneration that takes place, a, a recreation. That's what baptism is. So touching on this symbolism, there's no doubt that within the architecture and the furniture of, let's say, a Lutheran church, there's lots of symbolism. It's quite beautiful. All these things are constantly preaching at us. They, they are didactic. They're teaching. And when you think about, uh, for instance, just off the top of my head, uh, when you have a beloved saint in the Lord who has died— and, uh, and then there's a funeral. There's not a celebration of life. There is a funeral taking place here at Trinity Lutheran Church. And uh, let's just say, I don't know if you have this or not, but uh, we're going to drape that casket with a pall. And a pall is just a, it's a garment, but that garment symbolizes the fact that this one who has died in the Lord, the saint, she was clothed, as it says in our funeral rite in the hymn book, she is clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of her baptism. I believe it even says in remembrance of her baptism, does it not? Uh, it, it, it ties baptism to this act so, of, of draping the coffin with the uh, the funeral pall right and, and we, the, we do have that and we do use it yeah and it's, a, it's done in a in at the beginning of the service as we remember uh that this child is a baptized child of god how beautiful is that i mean yeah. this is symbolic but that is symbolic the the reality of the act of baptism took place a few feet away in the baptism at the baptismal font and probably you know maybe 40 50 60 years prior the the reality took place there yes or or 88 or 89 as in the last funeral here years earlier wow so that symbol, and then and then you know i don't know why why this took so long for me to like clue in here but every funeral i've ever been to what do you have you have 
Paul bearers who are carrying out the one who has died in the Lord to the hearse to, to make their way to the cemetery. Yes, where that body will be planted and it will await the resurrection. As they have been baptized into Christ and been raised with Christ to the new life of faith in this world, their body will be raised on the last day to eternal life. So there is a lot of symbolism, but baptism in and of itself, as you've pointed out, that's not symbolic. No, it's, it's God's act, his saving act, by which what was accomplished on the cross is now granted to the human being, the person, and they are made a Christian, a child of God. And even when you stand before your people this coming Sunday, you're wearing a white robe in front of your people. What is that symbolic of? It's symbolic of the fact that they, being your parishioners, are clothed in the righteousness, just like Revelation speaks of the saints being clothed in white robes. That's how the Lord sees them, as clothed in Christ's righteousness, as a result of their baptism. So the reality came first. And all the symbols that we have in the church point back to that one reality. Yes, I think, I think that would be a good way to describe it. Definitely. Well, this episode of the Pluck Chicken Podcast is brought to you by Wittenberg Digital. Wittenberg Digital provides website construction, website hosting, and podcast hosting for the confessional community. With websites that are easy to put together, easy to use, and manage content, and that provide high availability of that content to your users without the need and the oversight of big tech. Several big tech companies have removed religious content from their platforms and servers and continues to push that agenda. Wittenberg Digital was built by liturgical and confessional nerds dedicated to keeping the digital face of Lutheranism alive as long as possible. So if you're interested in doing something with your website, I encourage you to check out Wittenberg Digital at wittenbergdigital.com where they are keeping the Lutheran voice online. It also symbolizes consecration for an assignment or a task. Now, I want to make sure that you understand, Jesus not only baptized people, but John baptized Jesus. Now, why did John baptize Jesus? Without going deep into this, because I know that you're probably familiar, John baptized Jesus as an example, but Jesus wasn't being baptized to purify himself from sin because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was being baptized because as a Jew, he was familiar with the rite of baptism, with the tradition of baptism, but he was also being consecrated for the beginning of his earthly ministry. So when Jesus does get baptized, we see there a beautiful picture of the Trinity. We see Jesus in the water being baptized by John the Baptist. We see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove, and we hear the voice of his heavenly Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I don't want you to miss this because some of you are gonna really have to, in the next 20 minutes or so, decide, am I gonna get baptized today? Am I gonna do it? And I want you to know 
that when Jesus was baptized publicly, it pleased his heavenly father. And today, if you decide to go through with this act of baptism, this symbol and sign of the power of the gospel, of the beginning of life with Christ, if you do that today, it will please your heavenly father. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water from his baptism, this act of consecration, he goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, immediately where he is tempted by the devil, ministered to by angels, and after he passes that test, Jesus then begins to preach. It's a consecration. So baptism is this admission. You're saying literally to the world when you get baptized, um, I'm a broken, imperfect, sinful person. And even though I am made in the image of God, I needed God to save me. I needed God to rescue me. I needed some power stronger than me, outside of me, to come and help me. There's a phrase going around in America, and if you follow me on Instagram, I posted it this past week. I just wanted to say something, and I wanna say it again today here at Biltmore Church. There's a phrase going around our culture that I just wanna unpack for about 30 seconds, and the phrase is simply this, you are enough. You may have heard that, you are enough. And I, and I wanna explain for just a moment that in one sense, I get it. In one sense, I understand that we all wanna know that we don't have to perform, that we don't have to be successful, that we are made in the image of God and we don't have to win all of the arguments and we don't have to make all of the money and we don't have to do it on our own. I get that, like you are enough. But at the same time, I wanna say, you are not enough. I'm not enough. I am not sufficient in and of myself. And it is a primary, basic, elementary understanding of the gospel that tells us if we were enough, we would not have needed Jesus. You're not enough and I'm not enough. But I guess you could say that you're enough in the same sense that two fish and five loaves were enough to feed 20,000 people. Those two fish and five loaves would have only fed one little Jewish boy, but in the hands of the master, Jesus Christ, it fed a multitude. You are not enough outside of Jesus, but with Jesus, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you and gave himself for you. With Jesus, you are a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the King of kings and Lord of lords. With Jesus, every promise in scripture belongs to you. Every word that God ever spoke is yours vicariously through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is not theology. 501. This is theology 101. Baptism is a public admission. I needed Jesus to save me. I couldn't rescue myself. Well, Pastor, he said a lot there. Uh, where do you want to begin? Well, let's go back to what he said about uh, John's baptism and what was accomplished there and what its purpose was. Uh, John came baptizing unto repentance, and the people came and were baptized confessing their sins. Jesus stepped into the water for the very purpose, not of confessing sins, but of receiving our sins, the sins of all mankind, the sins of the Israelites who came and whose sins were washed into the water. So he took upon our sins at his baptism, thus became and was uh, identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So baptism by John was to bring the people of Israel, to repentance, lest they die under God's curse. And in that way, his baptism prepared Israel for the coming of the Savior. Having understood John's baptism, we can move to Jesus' baptism. I mean, 
the baptism Jesus instituted, which was for the forgiveness of sins. This, of course, Pastor King totally misses. Yeah. He doesn't understand it. He does not accept it. He denies it. And in so doing, what Jesus instituted as the gospel, the washing away of sins, holy baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, he has made an act of man by which man tells the world, I have uh, decided to follow Jesus. Baptism is not law as the evangelicals understand it. It's not something to be done by which one pleases God. And that's what he just taught us. Yes, it is. And uh, something else he talked about, and you hear it all the time, or at least I do, uh, it's this whole notion that you are made in the image of God. You know, as I've scanned the confessions, people do not realize that at the fall, the image of God in us was lost. It wasn't that it was maintained because we're creative people and that's the image of God. The reality is baptism is what begins to restore you to be in the image of God. To be baptized into Christ is to be created in the image of Christ. Right. And sadly, what I hear all the time, especially on right-wing media, people will say, you're made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. My argument is, and I might be alone here, please correct me. No, you're not. You are not made in the image of God. You're made in the image, as the scriptures say, of your father. Adam was made in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. Baptism begins to restore us to that image. Well, we have to distinguish between two different points here. And the first is that all human beings image God in their creation by him. And in that sense, they have value unlike the animals, for example. And thus, that man is created in the image of God is still an argument in Genesis 6, when uh, the Lord requires that for the, the blood of man, his blood shall be shed, right? So you have that aspect of it. That's simply showing we are his unique creation, which we were in the image of God. We lost that image in the fall, but we are still that unique imaged creature. But the other part is what is done in baptism, and we are created anew, in Christ Jesus, in the image of Christ. And so we are, in fact, now the Christian is in the image of God. And what does that image consist of? At the very heart of it, it is the merciful heart, the forgiving as we have been forgiven. So Jesus comes into the world and perfectly, completely embodies and is the very Son of God. And we know what God is through him. He is merciful, kind, forgiving, wins our salvation. When we forgive as we've been forgiven, when we are merciful as God has shown us mercy, we are imaging God. So circle back to John's baptism. John's baptism was, as you say... It was an act instituted by God. John was commanded to come baptizing. 
in order to create a people or prepare a people for the coming of the Savior. Israel at that time was impenitent, ungodly, and uh, God wanted a people for his coming. And so, you know, in the last chapter of, of Malachi, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So if, if John the baptizer had not come, it would have been the end for the children of Israel. But that baptism turned the hearts of the, of the fathers and the children in repentance. And they were primed to hear of Jesus Christ. Yeah, just like Jonah turning the hearts, uh, I of, mean, being used by God to turn the hearts and the minds of, of, the of the Ninevites. Absolutely. But when Jesus steps into those waters, it is as if he absorbs all of that sin. You remember when, um, I think his name was Sam Houston, he was the governor of Texas. Houston, Texas, obviously. And he was baptized late in life. And the pastor said, Sam, when you get baptized, all of your sin will be washed off of you. Do you have anything to say? And Sam Houston said, God save the fish. <laughs> okay. Very good. So Jesus steps into those waters, and it is as if all of that sin of all of these filthy Israelites, so to speak, and what I mean by that is sinful Israelites, that has been washed off of them, now gets absorbed into Jesus. Yes. Well, a, a better way of explaining that or stating it might be the... Uh what the priest did each year when he would place his hands on the head of the, the ram and would confess the sins of Israel upon that animal. When Jesus stepped into the water and was baptized by John, he took upon himself, or the Father placed upon him, all the sins of all people, specifically and particularly of Israel, but of all mankind as well. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel? No, the sin of the world. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Oh, I mean, if anybody is listening thus far in this podcast, I hope what they're hearing is the beauty and the depth involved in baptism as a result of some sign and commission and whatever garbage we're hearing from King here. Yes, this is turning something so wonderful into a, a very uh, poisonous thing. And let me give an example. I had a woman uh, who was about 80 years old early in my time here in, in Tryon, North Carolina. I was told there was a woman who was a Lutheran who lived in, in the area. So I went to visit her. And uh, she told me how when she was very young, she went to New York City and uh, was working with some evangelical group, and I believe it was the Navigators way back then. And what happened is, of course, the focus was put on her making a 
decision for Jesus. And that forever changed this woman. Her decision became more significant in her understanding than her baptism. That act of her will took the place of God's act of creation, of washing away sins, and of bestowing with the Holy Spirit and making one a child of God. That poisoned her. Years and years later, I come to her to talk to her and, and speak to her of baptism, and she really just sets it aside. I mean, almost to the point of despising it mm. in view of her decision, which was the real thing that See, mattered before God. You have just touched upon the difference between the evangelical mindset and the Lutheran mindset. You've just stumbled upon it. This is where the evangelical lives. There is no assurance for the evangelical. I mean, there are times when he or she is very assured because it was a decision that they made, blah, blah, blah. But then in the quiet time, so to speak, of their own mind, they start to think, man, did I really do that? This is why the Lutheran distinctives are so beautiful because they highlight exactly what the scriptures are saying. Yes, and John 3 in particular, where Jesus speaks of being born again or born from above by water and the Spirit. Which is the text for Pastor King, is it not? It I, is, but I, he won't talk about <laughs> it. Um, at the center of American evangelicalism is the born-again experience. Yeah, Billy Graham! Okay, now we Lutherans would say, oh, you're talking about being born baptized into Christ and no, being washed no, and no, cleansed. No, no, no. But rather, it is this act of the will, as they view it, the return of man to the original attitude of dependence. This act of the will, as they view it, is the return of man to the original attitude of dependence. It goes back to how one views Christ's work of redemption and what he accomplished. Did he complete the whole ball of wax and is it just given to us freely? Or is there just some small moral act that must still be done by me in order to receive the gift, merit the gift? Okay. And it gets back to the question of whether, uh, whether faith is a correlative of the law or of the promise. If faith is connected to the law, it's a work. If faith is connected to the promise, it's something created in man. He simply believes, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit as we understand it. And I believe in self-care. I mean, I've, had a, I've never had a pedicure, never had a manicure, but I have had a couple of massages. My wife and I like to get a massage once or twice a year. Have to, you know, use my kidney as, as a down payment on that, on that massage when I go. But, I, you know, I, so I'm not even talking about self-care. I'm not talking about taking a vacation. Listen, vacations are great. Self-care is good. Taking care of your health is important. But ultimately, only Jesus can take care of our soul. Only Jesus can take care of our eternity. 
And whereas it is your responsibility and mine to eat right and exercise and get good rest and care for our bodies and our families and our jobs and our homes, we have to submit to Jesus and let Jesus care for our salvation. And when you're baptized, you know what you're doing? It, you're admitting it. You're just fessing up to it. Which brings me to point number two, baptism is a declaration. Baptism is a declaration, and the declaration we make when we are baptized is this. I put all my faith in Jesus to save me. I am declaring publicly, loudly, verbally, symbolically, that my life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, there's no reason to break in here as he's just spinning this yarn, but, you know, we declare what verbally and loudly, but yet symbolically. <laughs> do, you, do you see how the evangelical mind is just bifurcated? I mean, it is just made up of nonsense. I'm not saying they're not Christian. I'm not saying they're not going to heaven. But uh, maybe purgatory uh, would be good for these folks just to spend a little bit of time there to burn this craziness off of them. What do you think? <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, we understand conversion as the exclusive divine action with complete human participation. And whereas we can understand that paradox from the scriptures that I am baptized into Christ means I have been made a believer and I myself am now a believer, but this is the work of the Holy Spirit in me. There just seems to be a disconnect there with the evangelical, that they, they cannot see this as a purely passive experience. And so he speaks of putting his faith in rather than simply believing. And maybe that's being picky, but I think it exemplifies or it uh, explains what he's thinking, that I am in fact putting my faith in something rather than I am brought to faith. Faith is created in my heart by God, and I'm the one doing the believing. It's a wondrous thing. Creatio ex nihilo, is it not? I mean, we look back to Genesis chapter 1, where God creates everything out of nothing, and all that is in the world is darkness and chaos and, well, nothingness. And then all of a sudden, there is a word And that word is, let there be light. And even before that, we saw that God is brooding over the surface of the water. So there's there's water, and there is spirit, and there is word. And from that comes a new creation. You fast forward to where there's this, well, let's just call it what it is. It's a baby that is born dead in his sins and his trespasses. There's nothing there but inky blackness and chaos. And there is water. And there is the Spirit. And there is the Word, because the Word is attached to the Spirit, and the Spirit is attached to the Word. And all of a sudden now, there is a baptism, just like in Genesis chapter 1. And what is there? There's a new creation. Creatio ex nihilo, out of nothing, this faith comes about. Yes, and so we see it also with Adam and Eve in the garden, with the word of promise that the woman's seed would crush the seed of the serpent. Therein, 
by that word, there is created out of nothing, spiritually dead. Eve now is made a believer, and Adam likewise. So, yes, the word creates faith. That I am no longer my own. I am declaring that publicly. So when John is baptizing people in John chapter three, John is declaring the kingdom of God. When his disciples come to him and say, hey, your cousin Jesus is more famous than you now, John declares, that was the reason I came. I am one who goes before. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. I, I plow the road. I make the way. I, I go first and I cut the path for him to come and walk. He's the Lamb of God. I'm not. He must increase. I must decrease. John verbally declares the glory of Jesus Christ, and he does it verbally with his mouth in front of witnesses as he baptizes. I remember, so my son, Shari is with me today, my wife, she's over here sitting beside uh, James and Michelle, two of our best friends, and Shari and I have two boys. Jacob is 19, Jojo is 16. Uh, my son Jacob, by the way, he's 19. Uh, tonight, I wasn't gonna say this, but I'm gonna say it, because you know I'm up here and I've got the mic, so I'm gonna say this. My son is 19, and tonight in Greenville, South Carolina, just down the road, not far, he's beginning a four-night revival at a church in Greenville called New Life Baptist Church, and Jacob's been called to preach. When I was 14 years old, the third church I ever preached at was New Life Baptist Church in Greenville, and the first uh, multi-day revival I ever preached was at New Life in Greenville, and my son is now gonna get to preach a revival there 35 years later, and the same pastor is still there. His name is Ronnie Powell. He's been there for 35, 36 years. Well, Jacob, uh, when Jacob was about five or six years old, one Sunday morning, really early, um, we were living in Boiling Springs at the time, not far from here, and I was preaching at Maggie Valley Baptist Church, not far from where some of you are right now, uh, not far from here, actually. I got up early that morning, and Jacob heard me in the house, was drinking coffee. He's like, Daddy, where are you going? I was like, I'm gonna go preach. Where? Preaching in Maggie Valley. Can I come with you? I said, of course you can come with me. Long story short, that day, Jacob heard the gospel and Jacob got saved. He prayed to give his life to Jesus. And on the way home, he and I were talking about it and he said, Daddy, when can I get baptized? I said, son, you can get baptized when you understand what baptism means, when you understand how powerful it is and what a sign and symbol it is. And we're sitting in the truck and he goes, well, Daddy, I know what baptism means. And I'm like, oh, you do? He had a lot of confidence as a five-year-old. I said, explain it to me. And he, he literally did this. He said, well, when you're up in the water, standing up, that's like when they had Jesus hanging up on the cross and they killed him. You die. Then when they lower you down in the water and they put you all the way under, that's like when they put Jesus in the tomb and they buried him for three days. He was dead. And then when the preacher brings you up out of the water, you're alive, like, they, like Jesus was alive when he came back from the dead after three days. Is that it? I'm like, yep, that's it. You get it, you did it, you win. You win the internet. You wanna preach? <laughs> At first I thought about excising that little story out of this just to save time, but then I thought, here's this five-year-old boy based upon the story that we've been told, who gives a seemingly good explanation for baptism. But do you think his daddy allowed him to be baptized as a five-year-old? 
Well, not in a Baptist church. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he did. I or mean, not. and he doesn't but, tell us. Yeah. But what what we do here there is a description of uh, pretty close of what baptism is. But Pastor King doesn't believe what the boy just said. But also, too, isn't it terrible that here God wants to give the gifts to everyone, regardless if they understand it or not. But Daddy here is standing in the doorway saying, you know, like um, Gandalf of old, you shall not pass (laughs) unless you completely understand exactly what baptism is when we've been listening to this sermon. And even Daddy doesn't even understand what baptism is. It's a very disappointing uh, moment in the whole idea that he isn't allowed to be baptized even before he makes such a statement. What is baptism? Baptism does connect us to the very death of Christ. And that's what the young boy was saying. The father was not believing that or teaching it. He wasn't going to and doesn't yet. But the statement was made. Now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that when one died for all, all died. That's an objective reality. And when you and I are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death. We die with him. And we are buried with him and we are raised with him. Christ's death is the end of any distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. It is the beginning of a new creation, a new man. And the only way to participate in this new creation is to be baptized into it. And so baptized into Christ, one now finds himself in Christ and that person is alive and has eternal life through the forgiveness of his sins. I think the boy did a pretty good job. I think the father fails completely. That was his declaration. That's what baptism is. That's exactly what it is. It is a symbol of what Jesus did for us. When you go under the water, it's a symbol of of how you died to your sin. When you come up out of the water, it's a symbol of, of your new life with Christ, active and participating in your daily routine. That is the beginning of a brand new life. And What is very interesting is how Pastor King followed up his son's comment by immediately adding a word that his son did not use. Symbolizes. And we can't go back in time, and we don't know the mind of this little five-year-old. But as I listened to it, I did not hear a symbolic description. I heard a reality-identifying description. When I'm put under the water, you know, I'm dying with Christ and I'm in the tomb with him and I rise and I'm raised. Now, if he, if he believed it then after his father got done with him, he didn't believe it anymore. That's the sad thing. But what Christ has taught us tends to work its way into us when the word is heard, even despite our parents sometimes. And when you, when you make this declaration, you know what you're saying? I don't have to wait to heaven. I can have abundant life right now. I don't just need to wait until the rapture bus comes and takes me home. I can have abundant life right here, right now because Jesus is with me. Jesus is in me through the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus will never leave me. Which brings me to number three, baptism is identification. I'm publicly identifying myself with Christ. It is an identification. Blows my mind every time I drive to Asheville, y'all's bumper stickers in Western North Carolina. Y'all's bumper sticker game is strong. I mean, you could see anything from like a proud parent of an honor student, um, my kid beat up your honor student. You, you might see the coexist, you see that a lot. Uh, the rainbow d- dog bumper stickers, bumper stickers about kayaking and rock climbing and hiking and every once in a while you get a guy with like a deer horn bumper sticker and, and all this other kind of stuff. You know what you're trying to do when you put a bumper sticker on your car? You're trying to identify yourself. You're communicating to people publicly, this is something I value. This is something I believe in. You identify yourself. I don't put any identifying bumper stickers or markers on my truck. I will not do it. I will not put any Bible verse. I will not put what part of a, what church I'm a part of, our ministry at Crossroads. I won't do any of that because sometimes I speed <laughs> and I don't want people to identify me <laughs> Speaking of Crossroads, I, I want to mention this. I, I mentioned Crossroads. I totally forgot at the beginning to say this. Uh, for, uh, okay, Pastor, I think he's freewheeling right here with the whole bumper sticker thing. And he, now he's making a commercial, so we'll just uh, jump to the and end we're of that. Be at Gardner Webb University this summer. Baptism is identification. Let me tell you what I mean by that from an example in my life. Shari and I have been to India together, I think, 11 times combined. One of my trips to India. We don't really see this as much in America because we are predominantly, historically, a Christian nation just from our founding, and I don't consider us a Christian nation by any chance, but that is our culture. In India, it's a Hindu culture. And one of the first, the first baptism I ever participated in in India, Dr. M.A. Thomas was baptizing converts. And I stood right there at the baptismal pool. And Dr. M.A. Thomas would, would ask these men and women who were being baptized, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And then they took an oath. So the church where this baptism took place, it's still there today, it's called the Martyr's Memorial. You walk in that church and on the, on the front of the church, by the stage, there are names of all the pastors who have been martyred for their faith that have come out of that ministry at Hope Givers. And before Dr. M.A. Thomas, who is now with Jesus, he's dead now, But before he died, every time he would baptize someone, he would make them recite and repeat an oath, the martyr's memorial at that church. And the martyr's oath was simply this. I will not deny Jesus Christ, though it cost me everything, including my life. Because in India, when you are baptized, you are publicly identifying yourself. I'm Indian, but I'm not Hindu. I'm Indian, but I'm not Muslim. I'm Indian, but more important than that, I'm a Christian. And they know that they risk their life when they get baptized in India. It's a public declaration. Baptism is also a commission. I'm a witness to the power of the gospel. It's a commission. 
Just like when Jesus was baptized. Baptism is a commission. Jesus' baptism was not so that he could be saved. Jesus didn't need to be saved. He was perfect. Not so that his sins could be forgiven. Jesus was perfect and sinless. It is a commission. It was the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus baptized is testifying, my father is pleased with my act of obedience. Now I'm gonna go preach the kingdom. Now I'm gonna go tell people about who my father is. Now I'm gonna invite people into this gospel life with Christ. As Jesus is baptized, that moment was a consecration before his temptation. Jesus was consecrating himself. So when we get baptized and we come up out of the water, the moment you come up out of that water, you are ordained for ministry. You are commissioned to go tell people about your baptism. As a matter of fact, baptism publicly has always been, and even today here at Biltmore, is gonna be one of the most evangelistic things we ever do as a church. Because when people are baptized, and I'm looking at our tanks right here at the Arden campus, when people are baptized, it is a powerful commissioning to say, I'm on mission with God now, and people get to watch that. Also, when people get baptized, oftentimes family members and friends that may not know Christ will come to celebrate this big moment in a person's life, and they get to hear the gospel. They also get to see the gospel symbolized visually with baptism. It's a commissioning. It's a moment where you are saying, as I submit myself to the Lordship of Christ, I know that when I come up out of this water, I'm a woman on a mission. I'm gonna tell my kids, raise my family, love my husband. I'm a man on a mission. I'm gonna lead my business. I'm gonna talk about Jesus on the ball field, in the gym. I'm a man, I'm a woman. We're a family on mission. Our baptism was a sign and a symbol to the world that we belong to Christ, and now I'm gonna talk about it. I'm gonna say the name of Jesus. It's important not to let what he, Pastor King said in his earlier point go when he mentions baptism as a public identification as a follower of Christ. Baptism actually establishes our identity, and identity goes so much deeper than uh, he has stated. We are indeed children of God through our baptism. We are heirs of God. And uh, Paul, of course, speaks of this in Galatians. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. And in chapter 4, Paul will begin with that thought that we are heirs of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might, be re we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are sons of God. We are actual co-heirs with Christ. And uh, this is our identity. 
Was there anything Paul said about being ordained at that point when one is baptized? <laughs> no. S- sounds no, a little no. odd to me. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. we're just throwing everything in there. Uh, yeah, that's of course that that's why he could begin preaching when he was fourteen, I imagine. Um, but no. And I guess if his son was baptized when he was five, he could start preaching then. And his father did authorize that, that he was right, qualified. Right. But this whole identity thing is so important because we are, in fact, heirs of eternal life. And that's our identity because we are children of God through the water of baptism. And this is what is totally missed and overlooked. When God provided the physical land to Israel through Joshua— as we read of it there, he provided a physical place for Israel's earthly life. And Jesus is identified as that single heir, that seed in Galatians, who comes to claim his inheritance. And as king, he dies to establish his kingdom eternally in his church on earth as the risen one and in a new heaven and earth in his return. Now, all baptized believers in Christ are heirs fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us in baptism, and that's the down payment of our inheritance that awaits us in heaven. All baptized believers are heirs of Christ's righteousness in the certainty of the forgiveness of sins. The baptized will inherit the eternal kingdom of God. That's our identity. With regard to commissioning, We are made children of God, and we are filled with the Spirit and cannot help but confess publicly, Jesus Christ is Lord, which doesn't mean in its first instance, ruler of my life, but my Savior. And this we we must emphasize. Christ saved us by his death on the cross, by the shedding of his blood, by paying for our sins and providing and presenting righteousness to the Father for all of us, all mankind. That's what has been done. We are commissioned, if you want to use that term, simply as Christians to be Christians, which means to tell people who our Savior is and how They too can be saved. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38. That's what baptism is. It is a commission. And finally, baptism is submission. That's a word we don't like. But you know what it means? You're saying, I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus is Lord. That is submission. It takes submission to be saved. You can't, listen, you cannot become a Christian if you will not submit to Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved if you will not submit to the fact that he is Lord and you are not. That might not be popular. I'm not running for a popularity contest, not running for office, not trying to get elected. I'm gonna stand before God one day and give an account for what I say with the platform he's given me. And I want to tell you that baptism is this beautiful sign of submission where you literally, now just think about this. You are literally telling somebody else, I'm gonna get in some water and I'm gonna trust you to like put me under. 
You thought about that? Well, that's kind of scary. When I was campus pastor at Liberty, that's um, about eight years of my life, we would have baptism <clears throat> at Thomas Road Baptist Church, which is on the campus at Liberty University. And I can remember baptizing college students. One time I think we baptized 151 students in one night. And I can remember being backstage, kind of giving the talk about baptism beforehand. And this guy pulled me aside, a football player at Liberty. And he goes, hey man, you big. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, what do you mean I'm big? You're hurting my feelings. What do you mean I'm big? He's like, no, man, I mean, like, you can handle me, right? I'm like, you mean in a fight? Like, what are you talking about? Like, UFC, like, Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes, 1983, Starcade? What are you talking about? He's like, no, man, I'm scared of water. I'm like, oh, you are? Yeah, I can't swim. I'm like, it's literally about 20 inches worth of water. He's like, but you're strong enough to pull me back up, right? I'm like, yes, I can get you back up out of the water. As silly as that might sound, it really is an act of submission. It's also an act of submission to say, I'm gonna publicly stand before dozens, hundreds, thousands of people, and I'm gonna climb in a tub of water, and I'm gonna trust that this act of obedience where I identify myself and submit to the Lordship of Christ is not merely a sign. There is a powerful transaction that takes place when I submit myself to let someone I trust baptize me and bring me back up out of the water. My head is on the verge of exploding. Is this a symbol or is it not? I mean, we've been talking this entire time about how it's so symbolic, and now it's something more. If baptism is an act, then I guess one must speak of submission. But baptism is a birth. It's rebirth. And a gift. It is a gift. It's worked by God. It's not me working. There's just confusion here. And right. uh, it's, right. it's, it's not helpful. The baptized, full of the Spirit, uh, submit to the Lord. The unbaptized do not. They need to be created anew and uh, born, born again, born from above, filled with the Spirit. I'm really excited about baptizing today at Biltmore because I'm gonna get to baptize today. I've never done that at Biltmore before. And I'm really excited. I'm gonna go change shirts and I'm gonna get to come out and I'm gonna get to participate in this baptism experience with you. But I do wanna share a personal story with you before, um, before I uh, close this part of the service and we begin to baptize people. Some of you that have been saved before and have never been baptized after conversion, and let me make sure you understand that, it's good to be dedicated and consecrated to Jesus as a child or as a baby. But biblical baptism takes place after a person has made a conscious, cognizant decision of their own free will and volition to repent of sin and fully put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. You obviously do not like what he is saying there. Of their own free will and volition. Yes. This is uh, just, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What? For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand he, them. Come on. You don't actually are, believe that, do because you? Because they are spiritually appraised. But you were dead in trespasses and sins. But dead people make decisions all the time, don't they, Pastor? Ephesians 2 is wonderful. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Dead 
made alive. Where he comes up with this other business is his own. He, he comes up with quite a description of what the scriptures say, but it's all from his reason, and it's not from scripture. It's very disappointing. If you've not done that after you were saved, if you, if you got confirmed or dunked or baptized or christened or dedicated as a baby, that's good, and I want to affirm and celebrate that, but that is not biblical baptism. Biblical baptism happens after a person repents of sin, crosses that line, and says, I'm fully yours now, Jesus. This is where I think the Nicene Creed is so helpful, where it just simply has that one little line in there, we believe in how many baptisms, Pastor? One baptism. Just one? For the remission of sins. So this person that he is speaking to here, who was baptized as a baby, but yet hears, I didn't really make a decision for Jesus. I was just baptized as a baby. I didn't submit anything. I don't even remember what took place. I got a certificate at home, and I know what church it was in, and I know the name of the pastor, even though he's, you know, he's long gone. Maybe that wasn't enough. Maybe now, after I'm really on Team Jesus, now I need to go get dunked. It's, it's something that he sows such doubt, and this is the problem. He takes from baptism the very substance and benefit, and that is the certainty of one's salvation. And he would sow seeds of doubt, and that is not of God. But he's a pastor. It's not of God. He's working for somebody else there. Now, I want to let you know, this was my story. So when I was seven, I made a decision for Christ and got baptized about a, a week later but I wasn't really saved. I didn't understand salvation. I didn't mean it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I honestly just didn't want to go to hell. And I thought if I got baptized that that water would somehow make me fire retardant and fireproof. So I got dunked in water. And for the next seven years, I I wasn't a Christian. When I was 14, I got saved. I was really converted, truly born again. But let me tell you what happened for the next five years. I talked myself out of getting baptized. I knew I needed to, but my pride would not let me. Why? Because I was the teenager that was preaching all over America. What would it look, this is what I'm telling myself, what would it look like for me as this evangelist that's in all these churches and preaching all over the place to all of a sudden get baptized? And so I talked myself out of it for five years. I waited five years to publicly identify myself with Jesus after I got saved. And I was preaching all over the place and seeing people saved and 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 really experiencing the power of God. I was saved. I was gonna go to heaven. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, but there was one thing still missing in my life. I had to submit myself to the Lordship of Christ, just like Jesus submitted himself to the authority of his Father, even submitted himself to the act of baptism, letting John baptize him. It is an act of submission to God to say, I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus is Lord. So at age 19, The the evangelist that was preaching when I got saved five years earlier came back to the upstate of South Carolina, was preaching at a church in Cowpens, and at 19 years old, I drove from Gardner-Webb, where I was a freshman, down to that church, and I got baptized. I wanted to get baptized when the evangelist who led me to Christ was there. I waited five years. Some of you don't need to wait any longer. Today's the day. As at the beginning, so here at the end, Pastor King speaks of being saved 
apart from baptism. And uh, the scriptures don't speak in these terms. Baptism now saves you. Uh, not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved you by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. If we listen to Jesus in John chapter 3 and follow all the way through the scriptures, we find out that salvation is in holy baptism and it is bestowed there. And he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Uh, these go hand in hand throughout the New Testament. Pastor King separates salvation from baptism and uh, will not allow Jesus to, uh, to speak that way. Now he's going to close the deal. You remember he's trying to get more people to be baptized, and so he's, he's closing the deal here now, and we don't need to listen to him do that. But I listened to another sermon, and in this sermon, this guy didn't have nearly the chops that King does. Not a lot of technological gadgets, but what he did was he is of the same mindset of Pastor King as an evangelical, but when he walks through the scriptures— he starts thinking, man, baptism is more than, I think, what I've been taught. I mean, he's saying these things out loud. He doesn't come to where you and I are, but what I found fascinating is, is that he actually goes to some of the church fathers in the first and second and third and fourth century, and he tells his congregation what did they think of baptism, which I found fascinating. Most times you don't hear what the church father said about it because it points to something more Roman Catholic to the evangelical ear. But I just wanted you to get a taste for what he said. So take a listen. One last thing that I wanted to talk about that is of a little bit less consequence but I think still has some persuasiveness to it. And that is, what did Christians think about this topic of the one baptism after the New Testament? So the New Testament is written approximately 50 AD to 90, 100 AD. The whole New Testament is basically written in about 50 years in that first century. And then it's been considered by Christians throughout the ages that that would close what we call the canon, what we call the Bible. But Christians after 90 AD, after Revelation is penned, they were still writing stuff too. We don't consider inspired to be Holy Scripture, divinely authoritative for our lives from God like the canon scriptures. However, they wrote, and you can go read what they wrote. They're preserved. They're not even under copyright law because that didn't come until much later. So you can go find what they wrote for free on the internet. You might have to pay somebody to translate it into your language like English, but you can go read what a lot of these early Christians in the first, second, third century wrote and what they thought and how they dealt with life and how they dealt with theological issues and issues in the church. And you can read those things. There's a few things that I wanted to pluck out just to show kind of an overview of what many of the early Christians thought about this concept of baptism. Because guess what? 
it didn't become a controversy in our century. Okay? So these writings are from the first and second centuries. I'll give you some rough dates. A guy named Hermas. He says, before a man bears the name of the Son of God, he is dead. But when he receives the seal, he lays aside his deadness and obtains life. Sounds very similar to what Paul's already said, right? The seal then is the water. They descend into the water dead and they arise alive. This is Hermas around 150 AD. Justin Martyr says around the same time, around 160, he says, Accordingly, we have believed and testify that the very baptism which he announced is alone able to purify those who have repented. Arrhenius of Lyons, around 180, we're deep into the first second century now. When we come to refute them, them being the Gnostics, the people that were saying that Jesus was just pure spirit, he didn't come in bodily form, we will show in its proper place that this class of men have been instigated by Satan to a denial of that baptism, which is regeneration to God. Thus, they have renounced the whole faith. For the baptism instituted by the visible Jesus was for the remission of sins. That's crazy talk right there. I mean, Irenaeus is starting to say that the Gnostics are disavowing baptism, and that actually makes them wielders of Satan. I mean, that's really strong language. Clement of Alexandria, around, we're in like 195 now, close to the end of the second century. Being baptized, we are illuminated. Illuminated, we become sons. This work is variously called grace, illumination, perfection, and washing. Washing by which we cleanse away our sins. Grace by which the penalties accruing to transgressions are remitted. Illumination by which that holy light of salvation is beheld. That is by which we see God clearly. So some dense language there. Same guy, Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome that Paul talks about in Romans. He says, in the same way, therefore, we also repent of our sins, renounce our iniquities, and are purified by baptism. Thereby, we speed back to the eternal light as children of the Father. This is not Holy Scripture. I'm just offering it as another angle of how did the earliest Christians after the New Testament process this stuff? How did they think about it? What were they dealing with? How did they communicate about it? So if it's helpful, hopefully then it's helpful. This is just, again, a taste of, I mean, you, there's volumes that these guys have written. And some of it, you know, you can trace some doctrinal errors and skewing. But really for quite a while, the consensus seems to be that Christians for centuries had a very uniform view on baptism. So what does that mean for us today? Baptism can be a very controversial thing for Christians, right? Do we baptize babies? Do we not baptize them? What exactly is the modality of baptism? Does it have to be fully underwater? Can it be sprinkling? What's the purpose of baptism? Is it an outward sign of an inward grace? Does it really save you? There's so many different viewpoints. Where do we conclude where we begin? Lay your eyes on the scriptures for yourself. Amen. Study this for yourself. And I'm confident that God's word will do what he intends it to do. Right. Yeah. I'm not making this up. I'm open to being challenged. Let's be a community of people that really love God's word. And we're willing to let it say what it says, even if it's controversial for our current context. 
And guess what? Baptism's just one. I found that very interesting. I really did. Yeah. Because as I listened to his sermon, uh, of which you know I've spared you and all of our listeners uh, from, but as I said, he just walked through the book of Acts, and he started picking up on all of these instances, and then he went to the epistles and started highlighting some baptismal passages. Now, the reason I found it so interesting is that even for me in my evangelical milieu, uh, where I would have echoed exactly what King was saying, to actually go back and be challenged with what the church fathers, or at least those guys, they didn't walk with Jesus, but they walked with the men who did walk with Jesus. And so when you looked at how they spoke of what Jesus said, or Paul said, it was totally different from what I had been taught and what I was teaching. And so this was the aha moment for me in that the Lord used those early writers to help me see exactly what the Scriptures were saying, rather than interpreting it in my modern novel uh, way of looking at it, in that baptism is a symbolic act, and it's you know, an act of, it's your first act of obedience after becoming a Christian, all that garbage we've already heard. And I know it's foreign to your ears, per se, because it flies right in the face of what the Scripture says. But my point is, is that those church fathers, that broke the tie for me. That was the breakthrough, as it were, for me to see that, oh my goodness, baptism is exactly what the Scriptures say that it is. And I don't have to downplay it. I don't have to come up with something else. But I hated the way that this sermon ended where he read what the church father said and then threw it back on the people saying, but if you want to know what baptism is, just keep searching the scriptures. Yes, he had a perfect opportunity to simply lay out the scripture passages which teach the early church view of baptism, which is what the view of the Lutheran church is. Or he could have just read from the small catechism. I mean, that would have been... (laughs) (laughs) A perfect opportunity for him to read from Luther's small catechism as to what baptism actually is. Yes, there you go. (laughs) That'd be the way to do it. Well, we who have been baptized into Christ, we await the final baptism. And for us Christians, death will be a real baptism, just as baptism was itself a real death. And we who live in Christ now, will then live forever with him in heaven, in new bodies, resurrected, glorified bodies. And uh, what a glorious time that will be for all who repent and are baptized, trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. I hope that what, what we've been able to accomplish here in our time together, Pastor Olson, is calling people back to the beauty of the baptism that they've actually been given Yes, excellent. That's that's what we've I hope we've done that and that others who hear it will know baptism saves them. Well, thank you so much. I hope you're with us again at another time, Pastor Olson. It's been great. And thank you for listening to the Pluck Chicken podcast. 
You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Pluck Chicken.